Good morning, church. Turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Thank you, Becca, for sharing that beautiful story. We're actually going to be talking about our money today. In fact, we're concluding our series, the third part uh, of our series called The Blessed Life. And we have been unpacking Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. And our key verse, however, is found over in, Act, in, the, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's all say that together. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And the question in this three-part series has been, and again, we're finishing it up today, we have been asking ourselves, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive? I mean, let's face it, we, we all have this, this way of thinking and our society just kind of weaves it into our brains that it is more blessed to receive. <laughs> I mean, we spend so much of our life about getting and receiving and, and, and wanting more and more. But Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we have learned what this means because it can be misunderstood. But, but we have learned what Jesus is actually saying is that a blessed life, a life with God's favor, a life with God's blessing, and actually a life that is happier and fuller comes from being the kind of person who, who is giving and caring and loving, as opposed to being the kind of person who makes life all about you, consuming, getting more and more. Now, of course, we need to receive. Of course, we need to have our needs met. But the blessed life, Jesus says, comes from being externally focused. Focused on other people rather than internally focused, rather than being self-centered, making it all about you. This is the way to the blessed life. Now, in the first two messages, we learned that our money management is actually a big deal to God. How you and I manage our possessions, our stuff, our money is a big deal to Jesus Christ. Jesus told roughly 38 parables depending on how you define a parable and how, how you count them, you can actually come up with slightly different numbers. But let's say that there are roughly 38 parables. Well, 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus told were about money and possessions. 16 of the 38. So Jesus talked about money and possessions a lot. For example, he told a story about a man who kept building bigger barns and storing up everything for himself, and then suddenly he died. And Jesus called him a rich fool. A rich fool. Why? Because he thought the blessed life was about storing up everything for himself and making life as easy as he could for himself. And life is all about me just enjoying life as much as I can, getting more rather than giving. Jesus called him a rich fool. Jesus told another story about a rich man and a poor man, and the poor man was named Lazarus. Lazarus died and went to heaven. The rich man died and went to hell. It totally reversed the common ways of thinking of the Jewish people. Even the parable of the Good Samaritan is about a man who had compassion on a stranger, and so he stopped, and he saw this stranger beaten up and half dead alongside the road, and this good Samaritan actually stopped and helped him. 
and bandaged him and took him to a to a, like a hotel, a, a local hospital and, and, and paid money to have this guy fixed up. Jesus said, this is what loving your neighbor looks like. When I tell you to love your neighbor as yourself, this is the kind of behavior I'm talking about. Giving, actually giving of your time, giving of your money to help someone in need. That's what love looks like. Jesus told parables about building a, a tower and counting the cost. He said, you better, when you start count, building a tower, you better count the cost. You better plan ahead. You better save up. You better plan ahead. You better think. Otherwise, you'll get it only half built. Can't finish it. People will look at you and, and laugh at you. And, of course, Jesus gave that famous parable that we call the parable of the talents. And, you know, the, 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 the word for talent is actually, it, it means a, a, an amount of gold. And so really Jesus is talking about money here. When he gives these three guys, he tells a story about a master who gives three different guys three different amounts of gold. And the two, two of the men who were given a greater amount, they managed their money well. And Jesus told them, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. But the third guy who was given a lesser amount didn't manage his money well. And Jesus called him in, in his parable. The master said, you wicked and lazy servant. And, and, and it's amazing when you really reflect on that parable because we might be tempted to think, yeah, but he was given less than the others. So and Jesus was like, doesn't matter if you have a lot or a medium or, or, or you're poor, you have a little. The question is, what are you doing with what I gave you? So you see, Jesus talked about money a lot. He spoke about it frequently. In fact, some, some believe that he actually, in fact, I think you could actually find this, that Jesus talked more about money and possessions than he did about heaven and hell. So sometimes people will say, in fact, maybe you're sitting here right now thinking, oh, Greg, come on, it's a beautiful summer day. What, what are you talking about money for? Don't you know that turns off some people? And uh, why not just stick to the gospel, Greg? Why not just stick to what Jesus has to say? Well, don't you see? If I stick to what Jesus says... I'll be talking about money even more. In fact, I could say if I if I preach more like Jesus, I would be talking about money more than more than I do. So Jesus knows. Why does Jesus talk about money so much? Jesus knows that discipleship includes stewardship. Discipleship includes stewardship. In other words, when you become a disciple of Jesus, you give your heart to Jesus and you start following Jesus, your money and your possessions better come with it. Otherwise, you're just fooling yourself. Martin Luther once said there are three conversions necessary in the Christian life. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. See, you know Jesus is really your Lord when he is Lord of your money. So now today, I, I want to I get very practical. I want to give you some very practical steps on how Jesus asks you and I to, to manage our money. Imagine five years from now. Can you do this? Imagine five years from now, if every single one of us obeyed God in the area of our finances. Imagine the impact this could have. Imagine five years from now, you've been managing your money according to the way God wants you to. And so what, what does that look like? Well, Imagine you're no longer sweating over your money because you're earning and you're saving and you're spending and you're giving the way Jesus wants you to. You're living a blessed kind of life. And if you're married, you're no longer fighting over money. 
you know, most divorces happen and, and most of them are caused because of, they're arguing over how to manage the money. Imagine you're disciplined enough to save and spend wisely. Imagine you're building margin in your life. So when the house needs some repair or the car breaks down and you need to fix it or some unexpected cost comes up, rather than it being a crisis, it's now just an inconvenience because you have you have a cash flow margin and you've been saving and you've been spending and you've been giving the way Jesus wants you to. So when things break down and those emergencies come, you, you're, 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 you've planned for it. You've got some ready and it's no big deal. It doesn't have to stress you out. So you're not living with, with that kind of stress. Imagine our church, our ministries, so fully funded. And imagine that, that, that we are able to give so much to, to Clarkson community and to, to missions and, and that, that our community all around is going, wow, look at that church. Look at those people. Look at how generous they are. Look at how they're helping the poor. Look at how they're feeding people, clothing people. Look, look at the good things you're doing. You know what? Maybe I'll check out this Jesus thing because, man, something's going on over there. This could happen. Do you believe this? This kind of thing can happen when we, when you and I are all in as disciples of Jesus Christ. So remember, discipleship includes stewardship. It's just a part of it. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I understand you, you don't you don't like any of this. That, that's perfectly understandable. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what it means. This is just simply part of what it means to follow Jesus. So here are three steps to financial freedom. This is the map that Jesus gives us. We, we've looked at this before, but I want us to go through it again and look at it from a slightly different angle. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. And here again is where Jesus uh, talks about our, our money and our, and our treasures. So let's, let's begin. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So notice Jesus talks about two treasures. If you were here a number of weeks ago, remember we talked about this. Two treasures. Treasure on earth, treasure in heaven. Jesus says, be careful, be careful that you're storing up treasure in heaven. Make sure you're doing this right. And then he goes on to talk about two perspectives. Verse 22, the eye. So he's talking about our eyes, how we see things, how we view things, our perspective. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's talking about our eyes. He's talking about our perspective and how we see things. And maybe you have a, a version of the Bible where it has a little footnote by those words healthy and unhealthy where it says if your eyes are healthy and if your eyes are unhealthy, the, the, the original word there implies generous and stingy. So you and I have a certain mentality. We have a certain way of seeing things. We either see things from a, from a generous perspective or we see things from a stingy kind of perspective. And Jesus says, be careful. Be careful how you see things. So there's two treasures, there's two perspectives. And then he goes on in verse 24, he talks about two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What? 
You cannot serve both God and money. See, ultimately you have one master. And Jesus says, be careful. Do you know who your real master is? So there's two treasures. There's two perspectives. There's two masters. And there's also two emotions. There's two emotions. Look at verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? So one of the emotions is worry. We could say fear. You know, I'm just so fearful all the time. I'm so nervous all the time. I'm worried about everything all the time. Why do you worry about, your, about clothes? See, see how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow was thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So here are the two emotions. There's, there's worry and there's faith. We say there's fear and there's faith. So how, as you go through life, most of your days, are you filled with worry or are you filled with faith? These are two emotions that, that can dominate your life. Verse 32, for the pagans run after all these things. Oh, verse 31, actually. Do, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Faith or fear? Are you allowing worry to dominate your life? So two treasures, two perspectives, two masters, two emotions, and then he gets to one solution. What's the solution to all of this? Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This is the solution. You put God first in your life. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Can I get an amen on that? Jesus was a realist. Each day has enough trouble. So don't borrow trouble from another day and put it into today. I mean, you got enough trouble just today. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So seek first his kingdom. That is the solution to all of this. So let's look at Jesus' map to financial freedom. And it really, it starts right here. And, and you could say it ends right here. And everything else is just an unpacking of this principle. And here it is, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You, you want to head towards financial freedom? Here's the treasure map about how to, how to handle all of your treasures. Seek first his kingdom. Jesus says when it comes to handling your, your treasure, when it comes to managing things like your food and your clothing and your possession and your money and all this stuff, don't waste time worrying about it. Instead, seek my kingdom first. Put me first in your life and I will help you take care of of the rest of it. So notice, put me first, he says, not second, not third, not tenth, first. Do you realize that Jewish people in the Old Testament were supposed to give God their first fruits, their tithes? They were to give the first tenth of their crops to the Lord. They were to give the first tenth of their flocks to the Lord. Also, the first day of every week, the Sabbath day, was for rest and for worship. God built into their very lifestyle a lifestyle of generosity where they had to give God the first of their wealth and the first of their time. This is the secret right here. You seek Him first. 
I ask you, are you seeking God first? Are you giving him the first of your time, the first of your wealth? If you're not a very happy person, here's a very practical thing to do. Start giving God the first part of your time, the first part of your money. Maybe the reason you're so unhappy is that you are making life so intently all about you. You're making it all about you. You're trying to consume your way to happiness, whether it's getting, getting attention from other people, whether it's getting more money or more stuff or more achievement. And, and you're just you're putting yourself at the center. You're putting yourself first and you're miserable. And you might even be a Christian. You say you believe in God. But the truth is God is second or tenth in your life. You've you got to put him first. And you know why God commands us to seek him first? You know why God commanded the Old Testament people to give him the first tenth of, of, of their, their wealth in the first day of the week? You know why? Was it because God is a needy God and God is just a selfish, grumpy God? No. God was wanting them to build a lifestyle of gratitude and discipline because God created you and me in such a way that gratitude and thanksgiving lead to happiness. In fact, if there's one secret to happiness, you know what it is? It's gratitude. All happy, all happy people are grateful. And ungrateful people cannot be happy. We tend to think, well, well I'll, I'll, I'll become more grateful when I get happy. <laughs> you know? No, no, no. But it, it's truer to say that, that complaining leads people to become unhappy. So it's a very simple thing. It's a very hard thing, very difficult thing, but it's a rather simple thing to grasp, isn't it? You and I could say right now, I'm, I'm not going to complain anymore. I'm not going to allow complaining kinds of words to come out of my mouth anymore. I am going to start in faith before God. I'm going to be speaking words of gratitude, words of faith, words of worship. And I'm going to be thanking God for his blessings instead of spending my energy complaining about all this. And you'll be amazed if you do that, you'll be amazed at how happy you can get. See, God wanted the Israelites to give him the first day of the week and the first part of their wealth so that they would be grateful and worshipful and happier. And I have suggested to you in this series that these that God's principles of tithing and obeying the Sabbath principles, giving him the first tenth, the first part of our wealth and the first part of our time. And, you know, the Sabbath principle comes over into the new covenant where we're gathered here today and we're giving God. And, you know, of course, we moved from the Sabbath to Sunday because that's the, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so what we're doing here really is celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, how he died for our sins and rose again. Now, is that cause for gratitude? Is that cause for celebration? One person over here got it. So, so you see, when we build this rhythm into our lives, it helps us to become grateful people. And, and so I've suggested to you that these are still very important principles that you and I need to weave into the rhythm of our lives. And we neglect them at our own peril. 
Every once in a while, someone will ask me, maybe you're sitting there right now thinking, oh, pastor, you're not one of those legalistic churches, are you? Where, where, where you, you teach that you have to tithe, you know, 10%, because you know, pastor, I'm a New Testament believer. I'm, I'm not an Old Testament Jewish person. You know, it's a new covenant, right? It's New Testament, new covenant. We're not under that, that Old Testament stuff. So, so, Pastor, you're not one of those legalistic Old Testament tithers, are you? And, and you're not bound by, by the Old Testament like that, are you? It's an Old Testament thing. And whenever someone approaches me like that and kind of talks like that, I'll play along with him and I'll say, oh, no, absolutely not. Uh, We are not a legalistic Old Testament church. No way. We are not bound to that. No, we are. We are followers of Jesus. We are New Testament people. We are not bound at all. So please, if you want to give more than 10%, you feel free. You just go right ahead. You give as much. You are not bound to 10%. No, you don't have. And usually they go, oh, you know, uh, because you see the game they're playing. I have never, I can say never has anyone come up to me with that line of argument as an excuse to give more. It's always been an excuse to give less. Every time. It's always an excuse to give less. You see? So, and by the way, Jesus comes a lot closer to commanding tithing than people think. For example, he says in Luke 11.42, he says, Woe to you Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees were the religious leaders, and, and they were very legalistic. And following all the things of the Old Testament, he says, woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth. In other words, you tithe of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So notice he says it's both. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So you tithe and love. You're generous and give, as as Becca said in, in her story. You know, you give give the money, but, but if you don't do it in love, then it's worth nothing. But it, it's it's both. It's both. Jesus says to do both. Tithe and practice love and justice. But even just for the sake of argument, let's concede that tithing is an Old Testament thing and not a New Testament thing. Can you really believe that when Jesus says to give generously, and he says that, and the apostles say this, we need to be generous people. We need to give sacrificially. And Jesus says this a lot. Is, is there any way we can rationalize that that's less than the Old Testament requirement of tithing? So, for example, we're in Matthew 6 right now. And, and this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7. And so if you go back just one chapter to Matthew chapter 5, and you notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, I, he says, I tell you, your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees. And then he gives examples of, of how it, sh- it should exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. He says, for example, you've heard it said, you know, you, you've heard it said, you know, back there in the Old Testament, don't murder. That's one of the Ten Commandments, right? The Old Testament said, don't murder. But I tell you, don't even be angry with anybody. So what's he doing? He's raising the bar, right? The Old Testament said, don't murder. I tell you, don't even be angry. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, don't even look lustfully at a woman. Wow. He's raising the bar again. It's not enough just say, I haven't committed adultery. But no, you're not even supposed to be looking lustfully. And then he says, if you, the old, you've heard it said, the Old Testament said, if you want a divorce, just make sure you fill out the papers right. But I tell you, don't get divorced at all. 
And then he, he goes on to say, if you make an oath, the Old Testament said, make sure you keep it. If you make an oath to the Lord, you better keep it. But I tell you, don't even make oaths because everything you say, you say should be true. You, you should never be looking for a loophole to lie where, oh, you know, I, I, you know, I can lie here because I technically didn't take an oath. No, you just be honest people all the time. So you see, Jesus, he takes the Old Testament and he exceeds it. He exceeds it. He raises the bar in every way. And now, is there any way you could think Jesus takes the Old Testament and he raises it in every way except when it comes to your money management? So that when he says, I want you to be generous people, I want you to be loving people, I want you to give. Is there any way we could rationalize, well, that, that means down here. <laughs> Can you really do that? Can we really say discipleship under Jesus is less life-changing, less transformational than following the laws of Moses? You see, I really think it's just a cop-out. A good principle based on Scripture is the 10-10-80 principle. I've taught you this before, 10-10-80. You give 10%, and remember, it's first. You, you don't see what you have left over and then give 10% of that. <laughs> no, you give 10% of your earnings, and, th and then you, you save 10% because you do need to plan ahead. You need to save up, but then you live off the 80%. See, to seek first his kingdom, you give 10%, then you save, then, then you live off the rest. And if you can't start with the 10% of giving, then start with five and then work up to the 10, okay? It, and, and I dare say, if you're sitting here right now and you are thinking there's absolutely no way, impossible for me to give 10%, I can tell you why it is. It's because you're probably in debt. You're in debt. And you just have no cash flow margin, and you just see absolutely no way. So let's talk about debt. This is the second step to financial freedom. Minimize your debt. The first way is to seek God first. You put him first in your money management. And then the second thing is to minimize your debt. If you are the average American family, you are spending 25% of your income just to pay outstanding debts. You have your house mortgage. You have your credit cards. You have your car payment. Some of us were talking earlier this morning. I don't know what the latest statistics are, but I've heard that uh, the average American family has something like $12,000 in credit card debt. The average American. So I'm assuming we're a lot average here. So many of you probably have $10,000, $12,000 in credit card debt. And you're only paying that monthly minimum balance. Wow. The, the IRS calculates that the average filer spends 10 times more paying interest on debts than he gives to charitable causes. You hear that? Many of us spend 10 times more paying just the interest on debts than we give to charitable causes. So I ask you, how much credit card debt do you have? And are you just paying that monthly minimum balance on that credit card? If you can, can I say something? And I will try to say this very respectably and very kindly. But that's just stupid. <laughs> it is. It's just dumb. I mean, my goodness. Now, I know you're smart. I know you're all smart people. That's all we have here at CCC, smart people. I, long ago, I've had the ushers. We filter out all the rest. We only let in the smart people. 
So I know you're smart, but listen, this is a really dumb thing that you're doing. Don't you realize, don't you realize when you buy that big screen TV or, or whatever it is, you know, choose whatever it is, and you, you don't have enough money to pay for it, so you put it on credit, and now you're paying. And you know, most credit cards have 16, 18, 20% interest. So let's say you buy that big screen TV, okay? And let's say it costs $3,000, and maybe you're not into big screen TVs. Maybe it's something else. You, you pick your product. But it's $3,000. And you put it on your credit card. And you only pay the minimum balance. And your loan rate is 18%. You will be paying about $76 a month over five years. And you're thinking, cool. I got this new TV. And it's only $76 a month. But do you realize that over that five-year loan, you will pay over $1,500 just in interest? So you actually paid $4,500 for that $3,000 TV. Now I ask you, isn't that dumb? Wouldn't it be smarter? Wouldn't it be smarter to have a good cash flow margin and have money saved up so you could pay cash for that TV and keep that $1,500 rather than putting it on interest? Now you have that $1,500 and you can go buy something else and you know, oh, now you might even be able to give. Huh. You see, now the Bible is not absolutely, does not absolutely forbid debt, but it issues strong cautions concerning debt. There's wise debt. There's foolish debt. Sometimes it's wise to get into a certain amount of debt because it can advance your business or it buys your home and, you know, whatever it is to get you where you need to go. But it needs to be reasonable. It needs to be a reasonable risk and a non-enslaving kind of risk. The Bible calls debt slavery. Proverbs 22, 7, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. Some of you are slaves to the lenders. Here's some practical steps to minimize your debt. List your debts smallest to largest. Pay them off in that order. And I know we could have a discussion about that, but I think there's something, there's a psychological win when you can list them small to large and you pay off the small one and it gives you a sense of feeling successful and, and motivates you to do the rest. But, you know, do, do not borrow anymore. Pay off your credit cards monthly. Keep that, that zero balance. Don't just pay the minimum balance. You pay off your credit card. It's fine to use credit cards. And in our society today, I know they're so useful. But if you cannot discipline yourself to, to, to pay off that, that monthly balance, whatever it is, that, then you need to just tear up your credit cards and maybe just use debit cards. Because, you know, debit cards, you actually have to have the cash in the bank for that. So you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You minimize your debt. And thirdly, you build margin and cash flow. You want to build margin and cash flow in, into your lifestyle. Several years ago, I was with uh, our, one of our prison teams, with Bob Beerman and our prison teams. And, and whatever prison it was, I can't remember. But I, and in fact, by the way, uh, we have several trips coming up. Uh, this summer, and if you are interested in going with us to uh, in the, into the prisons and witnessing and talking to some of these these people, uh, encourage you to, to sign up. We actually have a sign up out in the Connection Center right now. Bob Beerman will be here next Sunday, and uh, you'll be able to talk with him, get the details. So just be aware that's coming up. It's a powerful, powerful ministry. But but and I was there in prison, and I was talking to uh, this young man. He's 24 years old. He's a young black man, and uh, he was so handsome. 
and just strong, good-looking, and uh, very intelligent. And we were talking. We had we had some extra time from the program, and we were just talking. And I found out that he was going to be getting out in a couple of months. And I asked him. I said, "So, what will be your greatest temptation once you get out?" And without hesitation, he said, "Oh, I know what my greatest temptation will be." He said, "My uncle is." Uh, uh, a plumber. He has a plumbing company and he said he's going to hire me. And so I'm going to be making some decent money. And, and I know my temptation is as soon as I get my first paycheck, several hundred dollars, I'm going to go and, and my temptation will be to drink it away and uh, womanize it away. And, and I'll run out of money before my next paycheck. And then I will be tempted. Wow. If I just run one, you know, run some drugs just once, that will give me the cash that I need. And he said, and if I do that, I need to buy a gun in order to protect myself. And he said, and I know that if I get caught running drugs with a gun, I'll be back in here except for a much longer time. He already knew the scenario. He already knew the temptation. And so I started asking him questions. I said, so what are you going to do about that? You already know, and you have so much going for you. You're young, you're strong, and you got, you got all this ability. And, and I said, what if, I, I said, you, what's your vision? What, what's your plans? What's your dreams? And he kind of just looked at me. I said, what, what, if, what if you did something like you're 24 now? What if you had a vision? What if you had a dream, a plan? Like By the time I'm 30, I want to have saved up $10,000. Or you name, you name it, whatever. And you save up some money. What if, you, what if you have a vision like, you know, by the time I'm 30, I want to I be married, have some kids, have a, have a good job, have, have a home, go to college, whatever it is. And as I was talking to him, I said, what if instead of taking that paycheck and burning it, you know, before you even get the next paycheck, what, what, if, what, what if you took some of that and, and you saved up money, every, every paycheck, you took a good percentage of it and you saved it up every month between now until the time you're 30? How, how big would that be? How much could that do for you? And, and, and he's looking at me like, he had never, that was a new concept, total new concept. It was like, do you mean I don't have to spend my whole paycheck? But see, he, he was enslaved. He was he was he was lacking the vision to 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 see what what his future could be. Now, and I tell you this story, and I have no idea where that young man is today, because this was several years ago now. I hope he's doing wonderfully successful. And and my goodness. But some of you are here and you're not in prison, but then again, maybe you are in prison. You're sitting here and you look like you're free. But I, I tell you what, you're in prison. You are imprisoned. You are a slave and you're enslaved to debt. You're enslaved to lack of vision, lack of discipline, lack of goals. You are spending all that you make and even a little more before the next paycheck because you're taking out more even on credit. You have no margin. You have no cash flow. You are living paycheck to paycheck. I forget what the numbers are, but so many people in our culture today, that's how they live, paycheck to paycheck. And so when something unexpected happens, 
Now think about it. You know your car is going to break down sometime. You know the furnace is going to need repaired sometime. You know something is going to need fixed sometime. And so if you don't have any set aside for that, and then all of a sudden you got to spend $600,000, you know, fix up the car or fix up the furnace or whatever, and, oh, it's a crisis and we're in panic mode, and what are we going to do? No, if you, if you have saved up, you turn that crisis into an inconvenience. You go, oh, man, which just didn't happen, but, okay, I know life happens, so, but you have the money on hand, and you just write the check. You see, you can so greatly reduce your stress. Some of you are living, barely living paycheck to paycheck, no cash flow margin. And you are so stressed out, so full of anxiety. Proverbs 21.20, the wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Maybe you're going through life and you just gulp it all down right now. You got to learn to save. God doesn't want you to be a prisoner. He doesn't want you to be a slave. He doesn't want you to be stressed out and in panic mode half your life. So start now. Start today. Build margin. Build cash flow into your lifestyle. What that'll do, it'll kick Murphy out. You know, old Murphy, Murphy's Law. If something can go wrong, it will go wrong. You can kick Murphy out when, 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 you, when you have a cash flow margin. Turn crises into inconveniences. Save. If your parents and, you know, start saving for college, for your kids and all that, save for retirement. Hopefully you have some kind of retirement savings plan. The the statistics are incredible. People get to be 65, 70 years old, and they, they can't even retire. This is the map to the blessed life that Jesus talks about. So I encourage you to talk with Pastor Dan. And he's our executive pastor here. And, uh, and you, know, you can get online on our church website. And it's pretty easy to set up online giving. But if you have any questions, any issues, talk to Pastor Dan. He can help you. Maybe, maybe you need help in how do I go about minimizing my debt? How do I go about getting a cash flow margin? Pastor Dan can help you. In fact, he has a team of people that are really good at this kind of thing. And they can sit down with you one-on-one personally and, and help you figure things out. God doesn't want you to be a prisoner. He wants you living a blessed life.